The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture is from Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 41. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no business, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who, these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess, If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and they are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, shall it be settled in the regular assembly? For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Amy, for reading that passage. We are going to be working our way through the last 10 chapters of the book of Acts over the course of the fall, which puts us now squarely once again into the category of scripture texts with difficult words. 
And so, Amy, you killed it. That was great. Thank you. Nice job. Um, so, I love the Bible, and I love passages like this. And that was a long passage. I realized that was a long passage. Um, one of the things that is, is fun for me as a preacher is getting into passages like this that, you, that it's good to just look at and, and ask a fundamental question. Why is this in the Bible? Like, why is this a considered the holy, sacred word of God? And it's so good for us to work through that because, um, well, let me give a little bit of a context for what we're going to do in this, in this part of, of our series on the book of Acts. So two years ago, we, we began this sermon series on Acts, uh, working our way through the book, and we called the series A Place to Belong because the book of Acts is really the story of the formation of the church. Um, the church, the Christian church as, as we know it. The book of Acts is unique in Scripture in that it is the only narrative book in the Bible that comes after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there are other little narrative details in other places in Scripture, but this is the narrative book that's talking about the story of the early church where believers are called to worship and to connect and to serve. And so the book of Acts begins where the gospel ends, and that's with the Great Commission. That's Jesus telling his disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And Acts is that process unfolding, the gospel going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so in a very real way, the book of Acts is, for the Christian church, our origin story. It's not really the beginning. The beginning is in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But it is the origin story of the Christian church on earth. And so what we're going to do is we're going to finish the book over the course of this fall, 19 through 28. So if you go back onto the website and you want to see our sermon series on the book of Acts, it'll all be there. We're not going to read every verse, but what I'm going to do week in and week out is I'm going to fill in the gaps of the narrative arc so that it's connected. Because this book, Acts, has a narrative arc, but sometimes it can be tricky to follow because the book of Acts can read a little bit like Exodus in the Old Testament. And by that I mean when you read the book of Exodus, it starts with you know, Moses is born and the baby is put in the reeds in the Nile and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and he's raised in Pharaoh's palace. And then there's the, 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 the plagues and, and the exodus of leaving and the parting of the Red Sea and then the wilderness wanderings. And we're on a narrative, right? We're following it. It's a story. Boom, boom, boom. We're going right along. Everything's unfolding. And then they stop and they build the tabernacle for like 18 chapters or something. And there's cubits and measurements of curtains. And, and it kind of, the narrative sort of freezes and all of a sudden we're, we're, we're drawing out blueprints. And then it picks up again. And then they actually build the tabernacle, and so they kind of repeat a lot of what they said in describing what they were going to build. And Acts can be like that too, where you're following this story, it's moving along, and then all of a sudden uh, the main actors kind of part ways. And so you've got two stories happening at, at two different places in two different times, or maybe it's the same time. And then somebody will preach a sermon, and that'll kind of stop things for, for a chapter or so. And then, and then so what I want to do is I want to thread together for us the narrative, the arc of it, and try to tell the whole story as we go. So, so this fall, it's going to be a lot of storytelling. 
because it's fascinating what happens here in the book of Acts. And so we're going to do that. We're going to do a lot of storytelling as well as well as finding ourselves in that story and some applications. So, so with that said, let's get caught up. It's been a while since we've been in the book of Acts. We're starting in Acts 19. Let me take us back to the beginning of Acts 19 and, and kind of talk about what's going on here. So, and, and a key kind of emphasis for today is we're in a stretch of the book of Acts where God is at work. And he's at work in a variety of ways. And so if you're in a place in your life where you're wondering, is God living and active right now? Because I need him. I need his presence, but I'm not sure if he's working. This, this stretch of the book of Acts are places where we see God working in ways that are like supernatural and amazing and also very mundane. And he works in both, which is good news for us, right? Because sometimes I need a miracle and sometimes I just, I just need a process to go the way the process is supposed to go. And you see both of these and it's God working. So when we come to Acts chapter 19... Here's where the Apostle Paul has been. He spent three months in Ephesus. He's been teaching about Christ. He's been in the synagogue. People have believed in Jesus. Some have. Others, though, have begun to really resent his ministry there and tried to turn people against him, saying all kinds of evil things about him and about Christianity. One of the things that Paul would do on his missionary journeys pretty faithfully is he would start off by going into the synagogue first whenever he would enter a new city that he would bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jew first and then to the Gentile, if you've heard that expression. That meant go to the synagogue first and then other places. But as we get deep into the book of Acts, we begin to see that pattern shift a little bit. And it happens here. And it happened before where he was before, which was in Corinth, where, and even in Athens before that, where Paul is choosing to withdraw from the synagogue and he takes the believers who are with him, and instead what he does here is he spends, this is from Acts 19, 1 to 10, as he spends the next two years, two years, teaching regularly about Christ in a lecture hall. So he's not in the synagogue anymore, he's in a lecture hall of a philosopher named Tyrannus. And there, as he's preaching Christ, because, the gospel, because in the synagogue they were hostile toward it, Paul preaches for two years and the message spreads and soon, soon Jews and Gentiles alike from all around Asia Minor are beginning to hear about Christ and believe. During this time, as he's doing this, Paul is performing miracles. That's in Acts 19, 1 to 10. Many miracles. In fact, healings and also the casting out of demons. And so the sick and the troubled are flocking to the Apostle Paul in very much the same way that people pressed in to see Jesus in the hope of being able to touch the hem of his garment. That if I could just get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, then I would be healed, the woman with the issue of blood thought. Or then as earlier in the book of Acts, we read about Simon Peter, who people would just try to get in his path hoping that his shadow would fall on them because if his shadow would fall on them, they'd be healed. What's happening here? Well, a couple things. One is the Bible is messing with your thinking. That's one of the things that's happening here. Because what do we do with this miraculous healing thing and people touching the hem of a garment in order to be healed? How do we even put our minds around that? Paul understood very clearly 
that it wasn't in an ob- the power wasn't in the objects. The power was in the Holy Spirit working through the ministry of Paul. He knew that the power didn't lie in the objects themselves, but in the Spirit who worked in them. But I love passages like this because they're weird for us. They're weird to our ears because they make us check our assumptions, like whether or not God heals people, whether or not there are miracles. If so, why does God perform miracles? Under what circumstances? And one of the things that we see when it comes to God being at work here in this passage is we see that God is at work by showing his power. It's not just that he's healing people. He's healing people in ways that other people are seeing and saying it is undeniable that something supernatural is happening through the ministry of this person. He's showing his power. And it's reminding us there is a spiritual realm. And the Lord is present and active in our world in ways that we can't always see. And he works in powerful ways always. In the West, in our moment that we're in right now, we're very tempted to just dismiss the idea of miracles. And we say, well, that's just kind of a silly way to think. And we'll say it's a silly way to think because we're enlightened. We just know more than anybody in history has ever known. We see the field. But we have to remember, with humility, we have to remember that if we're going to take the position that miracles aren't really a real thing, we are taking an extreme minority view when it comes to the history of humanity. That we're one of the only generations that has thought this. And it gets problematic if you believe in the God of the Bible. Because if you believe in the God of the Bible, and, and this is a God who says, I don't change, then you have really no grounds to declare that miracles can't happen. Because you know who it is that ultimately performs them, and it is the God who made the heavens and the earth, who spoke everything into existence out of nothing, who raised Jesus from the dead and Lazarus, right? And if this is the God that we believe in, we really have no grounds to declare that he doesn't move anymore in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. And so we have to ask, why does he move in mysterious ways? In Paul's day, the Lord performed miracles through his apostles in order to validate their ministry, in order to establish them and prove that they are sent from God because they are doing things that mere mortals can't do. And notice the response that people have to these healings and these miracles because it's a response that has not become outdated. The response is people flock because we want to be healed of our pain. You want to be healed of your pain. You want to be delivered of your troubled spirit. So do I. We want this. God is the one who works. And then we come to Acts 11 through 20, which is delightfully weird. If we thought this previous thing was weird, get ready, because this is a passage where we're given a proof 
that the miracles don't just happen through anybody who wants to perform them, but God is the one who works. Because there we read about a group of men called the sons of Sceva. And if you haven't read this passage, it's worth just taking some time in Acts 19, 11 through 20 when you get home to read about these seven professional exorcists known as the sons of Sceva who hear about what Paul is doing and they want to borrow from his fame. And so they find a man who is tormented by an evil spirit and they say to him, if you've ever wondered if there's comedy in the Bible, this might be a contender for that. They say to him, by the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, we command you to come out. Well, that's daring. And a little formulaic. And you can see them kind of saying it and maybe saying, please work, please work, please work. Right? <laughs> Instead, the Spirit looks at them and says, I know Jesus. I know Paul. I don't know you. <laughs> and then proceeds to beat all seven of them up to the point where they are forced to flee naked and wounded. It's right there. What are we seeing here? We're seeing God at work. How are we seeing God at work? We're seeing God at work defending the sanctity of his own name. Of saying, you don't get to just throw my name around. It has to be tied to a relationship and a redemptive purpose. What happens when the sons of Sceva get their lunch handed to them? The text tells us that when people heard what happened to them, they feared the name of Jesus even more. And they gave Paul an even deeper measure of respect. And many in that town who made their living as charlatans pretending to be skilled in the dark arts began to confess publicly their fraud. Because they didn't want anywhere near that kind of trouble. And instead, they burned their sorcery books in the public square. And this sober response led Paul to see even more conversions through the testimony of his ministry. God is at work defending the sanctity of his own name. And then we come to today's passage. Where during, time, during Paul's time in Ephesus, he gets a report that the church in Corinth that he had planted and labored, and it was hard, that they were struggling still to live out their faith. If you read the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about a couple of letters that he sent, and, and they're letters that don't exist anymore. Um, here's a place where Paul heard about them struggling to live out their faith because Corinth was a hard place to live as a moral person. This is a hard place to live as a moral person. And so he decided, to write it, he decided to write them a letter addressing their struggles as well as he could from a distance. But then he sent Timothy and Erastus to go deliver the letter and minister to them. And what Timothy found was this church is in upheaval because they're bending under the influence of those who oppose the gospel. But meanwhile, while where Paul is, the church, the Christians in Ephesus are also becoming targets and they're becoming targets of an economically motivated persecution, which is today's text. There's the silversmith named Demetrius. Makes his living selling idols to Artemis. And then Paul comes along and he says there's only one God. And this rise of a monotheistic faith starts cutting into the 
polytheistic sales of the idol factory. And so Demetrius gathers the members of his guild and he says, guys, we have a problem. And the problem is we're about to face a recession. Because if people start to believe in the God that Paul is proclaiming, they will not buy from us anymore. And so we have to stop them. And here we see God at work in another way. So we see him displaying his power. We see him defending the sanctity of his name. And here, believe it or not, you see God at work using reason and local government to defend his own people. And you may say, I thought local government in the Bible was the bad guy. God works through reason and local government to defend his people. Let's look at it. Demetrius gathers his people and he says, listen, it's not just that our sales are drying up, it's that our profession is starting to get a bad name. Even the great goddess Artemis, who is worshipped around the world, is being defiled. And so panic seizes the craftsmen and they rush into the theater in Ephesus and they're looking for Christians. Who can we grab? And they grab Gaius and Aristarchus, companions of Paul, and they start calling for Paul, show yourself. Get in here, show yourself. And Paul wants to go. He wants to go stand with his friends. He wants to appeal to his right to a fair trial as a Roman citizen. But the other disciples who are around, they listen to what's happening and what the crowds are saying, and they realize nobody here can agree on why they're mad. So this is just a theater full of people who are mad, and they're mad for different reasons. They're all saying different things. They're all stirred up. One group protests one thing, another another. The only thing they can agree on, and they eventually end up chanting, and they chant for two solid hours, is great as Artemis of the Ephesians. And the other disciples see this, and Paul's wanting to go in, and they say, Paul, you can't go in there. If you go in there, they're going to eat you alive. You may not make it out of this riot. And then, as the fervor intensifies and intensifies and intensifies, something really out of the blue happens. The local town clerk who is this elected official who's responsible at least in part for keeping order sees what's happening in his town, hears the confusion, fears that his city is about to be torn apart by its own people, and he steps forward to quiet the rioters. And when he finally gets their attention, he reasons with them by way of a rebuke. Now, this is not a Christian, but listen to what he says. This is me paraphrasing. He says, men of Ephesus, everybody in the world knows that this city is home to Artemis. We're home to her sacred stone, which fell out of the sky, some kind of a meteorite. We've all seen that stone. No one will ever deny that this is who we are here in Ephesus, that this is our thing. The world will continue to buy our statues. So be still. These men, they haven't openly blasphemed our faith. Demetrius, you're offended that their message is hurting your business. And that's fair enough, but take them to court then, if you like. Or bring formal charges against them and let the proconsul do their jobs. But what we're doing here today is nothing short of a riot. 
And nobody can agree on why, so stop it. I love it. There are four things that he's saying basically in this speech as he's defending the apostles. He's saying everybody knows that Ephesus is the guardian city of the temple of Artemis. That's not in jeopardy. That would be as ridiculous as somebody saying right now, um, Nashville is an epicenter for health care. And people saying, if you keep saying that, people will forget that we're Music City. <laughs> like, you, people will never forget we're Music City. It's, we can't, we just won't let that happen. Nobody will ever stop talking about how we're Music City. Like nobody, that's not in jeopardy. He's saying everybody knows that Artemis, if you want to worship Artemis, this is where you go for that. And then he says, these guys are not blaspheming Artemis. And the undercurrent of what he's saying is he's saying, they're not blaspheming Artemis because Artemis isn't real. And you know that. We know, everybody knows it. They're not blaspheming. And then 30 says, if you want a case against them, there are ways to do that. There are like legal ways for you to sue them. And then fourth, he says, and if you keep doing what we're doing here, and there's a riot, you're going to be the ones who end up in legal trouble for completely disrupting civil order. And the crowd disperses. And they disperse because they know he's right. He's right about all of it. And so Paul goes in, finally, and he finds Gaius and Aristarchus, and they are unharmed. And this is a profound moment in the history of Christianity. And it's something that has happened a couple of times before, but it's worth noting because God is working here through civil law. What happened? Well, more and more, accusations would be thrown at Christians and they would fail to stand up in Roman court. Which means accusations against Christians were beginning to get the reputation of being flimsy. So now, they're only really going to be effective if you're the one who actually has power. Like Nero. But this has happened before. This riot in Ephesus was like the time Paul was arrested in Philippi. And he was thrown in jail and he was beaten. And then he said, I'm a Roman citizen and you didn't even give me my due process in, in court. And they realized, uh-oh, you're right, we made a mistake. And they say, excuse me, Paul, you're allowed to leave now. And Paul says, no, thank you. I'll wait right here until your supervisor shows up, escorts me out with an apology. Right? This is the kind of thing. This situation, that situation in Philippi tramples Roman law in the name of personal satisfaction. And those who respected Roman law were beginning more and more to say, hold on. We can't just beat people up because we don't like the message they're preaching. And so they begin to actually defend the rights of Christians to live and serve and teach openly without being harassed. Every time the apostles, or in this case, a local official appeared to Roman law to defend Christians, appealed to Roman law to defend Christians, the Lord is working 
through the basic framework of local government to protect his people from persecution. Now, we know, because if you finish the book of Acts or even if you've gotten to this point, you know that he didn't prevent all persecution. That wasn't his will. But he did work in ways that it would give people in positions of power pause when it came to using their power for abusive purposes. And that trend is encouraging. But it also still highlights the volatility of the Christian's place in the world. Okay, land the plane. What does this mean for us? Often in the course of the Gospels and Acts, faith in Christ is presented as a threat to the government. But then the government looks at it and says, that's not really a threat. And what it's revealing is it's not a threat, but it is being positioned that way because it is a threat to the agendas of individuals who use fear of the supernatural to get rich off of the fearful. And every time the government says, hold on, that's not really breaking a law. It's making people have to deal truly with the claims of Christianity. One of the most famous places we see it is when the chief priests, the high priests, hand Jesus over to Pontius Pilate, who's a Roman official. What does Pilate do? He looks at Jesus, he looks at the high priest, and he says, guys, you know that he's not guilty of breaking a Roman law. This is your own thing. You deal with it. And then they have to trump up these charges and say, actually, Jesus is trying to overthrow Caesar. Then it's a breaking a Roman law, right? But he tells the crowd, Pilate tells the crowd, Jesus isn't guilty. He washes his hands of his blood. And now in Acts, we see it again. The apostles are being vindicated by way of local statutes. Believers weren't always vindicated, nor are we now. Most of the apostles went on to die as martyrs for their faith and their proclamation. However, why would they even engage with any of this? Why would it even matter? Why would the Apostle Paul want to run into the theater and, and, and address the rioters knowing that he may die? Why would any of them have wanted to even be a part of this? Why wouldn't they have just said, it's impossible to navigate this world with this faith. Let's just go find a place to be a commune off the grid and just do it that way. The reason is because they were always looking beyond this life to the life to come. The message they were proclaiming was to any who would hear and believe by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. They knew, the apostles knew, this world is not all there is. And that to live as though this world is all that there is, it will just make it impossible for anybody to truly love their neighbor. And the reason it will be impossible to truly love your neighbor is because without God, without mercy, without grace, there's no reason for you not to try to just get as much as you can. But if the gospel is true, everything matters. Everything matters. And everyone matters. And for that... They would risk their life to proclaim the mercy and the grace of a Savior who would restore them to the maker of their heart, the maker of their soul. The clerk in Ephesus 
He was dead wrong about something. He made his argument, but he was dead wrong about something. And that is this. Nobody worships Artemis anymore. That's just done. Nobody worships Artemis anymore. People will go to Ephesus and buy an Artemis statue. Nobody worships Artemis anymore. But you know what? Millions of people have given their lives away to serve and follow Christ. Why? Because we're made for it. We're made to know and be known by this one who loves us and gave himself away for us and reconciles us to our creator and is always in a range of ways, always working. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for the twists and turns of scripture, for the narrative arc, for the surprises, the unexpected interventions, the, uh, for every sad and tragic thing that we encounter in the pages of scripture, it is confronted with the reality that we are gathered here as a local church today on the other side of the world, that you have preserved your church by your mercy and your grace in the face of incredible opposition, stories that we hear and then the countless stories that we've never heard. And so, Father, we thank you for that. Lord, I pray that you would remind us through passages of Scripture like this where we see the mechanics of local government working their way out in the defense of Christian people, that you would remind us that you work through supernatural ways and you work through very ordinary and mundane ways too, and that we would trust that you are always at work in our lives and that we need to just trust you to lead us. Father, we thank you for your kindness and your mercy. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.